waiting patiently is something I think uh, as Londoners, uh, we, well, I'm continually tested in, I find, uh, waiting for spaces on tubes and trains was my particular uh, kind of uh, thing this week. Uh, particularly, I was heading back from somewhere uh, called Market Harborough, and trains were delayed, and it was raining, there was no covering on the platform, and there I was, um, you know, nine o'clock at night, miserable, and just boiling inside as I was meant to be waiting patiently. But it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to wait patiently. If you're anything like me, it doesn't come naturally. And we can be impatient over all sorts of things, whether it's at work with colleagues who should have got the bit of work done that you told them to get done by a certain deadline and they're delaying, or just waiting for family, for love, for relationships, to work out as we want them. So often I think I know what should happen and when it should happen. If a train is late or if I'm caught in traffic, it's never my fault for not planning. They're kind of underestimating the journey time. Waiting patiently, you see, requires waiting with the right expectations. Hence why I just read Psalm 130 and we sung it earlier. I will wait for the Lord. My whole being waits and in his word I put my hope. I will wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. See, like Psalm 130, Habakkuk is a a book about waiting. Waiting sits at the heart of our passage today and it will come up again a number of times uh, throughout the letter. And that's where we're heading today. But let me just say, if I can, because some of you weren't here last week, let me just say, flick back a little bit if we may. Last week we looked at the problems that the righteous face and speaking on behalf of a a portion of God's people, a faithful portion of Judah, Habakkuk uniquely appeals to God. He speaks to God. It's that direction. Prophets, every other time a prophet receives from God and then speaks to the people. Habakkuk is different in this. He talks to God. And the initial problem that he comes to God about was the injustice and and the violence within his own nation, Judah. And the Lord answered Habakkuk's questions. The questions were how and why and how long will we have to go through this? But God, the Lord, Yahweh here, answered Habakkuk's cry. And, and, and there really begins the second problem in God's answer. See, the Lord did answer Habakkuk's prayer, but clearly not in the way that Habakkuk had imagined. For God raises up the Babylonians. Uh, And they're essentially going to come and they're going to rip Judah apart. And so does Habakkuk and his confusion, his trouble then run from God? That's our temptation, isn't it? No. The first thing Habakkuk does, and it's it's awful what's going to happen. He runs and comes to God. He draws near and worships him. Look back at chapter 1, uh, verse 12, and you'll see that real kind of centerpiece of that passage. Chapter 1, verse 12. O oh Lord, are you not from everlasting? He remembers the nature and the character of God. My God, my Holy One, we will not die. Eternally, if we put our faith in Jesus, we will not die. He's reminding himself and his listeners that in the character of God, despite how everything looks in your life, in his life, There is great hope, even in the darkest times. We will not die. Now, of course, we will in these bodies that will, you know, wrinkle and decay. But 
through faith in the promise of God, now in Christ, of course, death is not the ultimate end. So Habakkuk worships God, but he's still confused. And so he challenges God. Habakkuk's complaint is that God is raising up a, a less righteous nation. Babylon are a bunch of scoundrels. And God is going to use them to bring judgment on a more righteous people. God's people, Judah. And so Habakkuk waits patiently for an answer from God. We see in chapter 2 verse 1 on his watch post. You imagine that? corner of the the embattlements and you expect to see dust in the distance first as Babylon come and they know what's going to happen now which brings us to our passage today he's ready for battle Habakkuk can easily be preached in three bigger chunks Uh, that's obvious by the divisions Uh, but I'm just going to take us to this little section here today because I felt it was more important to slow down these verses. And I hope you see why it's important. Just turn back with me to chapter 2, verse 2 again, if you may. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets, so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time, but it speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait. Wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. <clears throat> for many years, I, I used to sleep um, with a pad of paper on my bedside table beside me. And uh, many people would encourage me to do that, suggested if I struggled to sleep, you know, I could perhaps you know, download a little bit of the, the most amazing revelations that I have in my brain that the rest of the world absolutely needed. Uh, in the many years I had that small piece of paper at my bedside, I never wrote a thing. By contrast, Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan, preacher of the early 1700s he did a bit better with his pad of paper and every day that um, after he worked throughout the morning uh, he would ride his horse for exercise in the afternoon to reinvigorate himself for the rest of the day in his writing and his preaching uh, and meeting people and a thought would come into his head you know amidst his horse ride uh, you know and he would stop his horse And he would reach back into his kind of leather saddlebag and he would bring out some paper and a pencil. And in the woodlands surrounding Northampton, Massachusetts, many would agree that many of the greatest works of Christian thinking and literature were born there. See, if you have a thought, you want to keep it and you write it down. Perhaps on your phone now, you get a little note and you kind of make a, make a few lines down there. But you get it down if you want it to be preserved, don't you? And it's obvious because we all gauge the importance of something by the fact that it's written down. So contracts in employment, you know, in law, in business, we understand these principles, don't we? The Lord's second answer for Habakkuk is, he, is to be written down. Verse 2, make it plain on tablets. It's important. That's what God is saying here. This is really important. Get it down. Firstly, as a record for future reference so that people of God can look back and go, oh yeah, I see, it's been fulfilled in the way that God promised. But also it's written down as a current reference so that the people, no doubt including Habakkuk as well, could proclaim it as he's called here, to herald it. 
But what is the revelation of verse 2? Uh, God is speaking to Habakkuk. Uh, it perhaps is coming through a vision, but the method is far less important than the message itself. And the revelation itself is from, look at verse 2, down to verse 20. It's the second response of God. God is speaking and revealing himself to his people, and he's answering Habakkuk, who's patiently waiting. And, and these, couple of, these first two verses seem like an introduction to the rest of the revelation. They give perspective, I think, but they also show importance. Write it down, God says. So there's no confusion. There's no confusion in your head, in the, in the people's heads about who I am and what I'm about to say. So you'll be clear so you can herald it to others. Perhaps verse three, if you look down at it, God is making it clear to those who may be dismissive or cynical of his word. But the quality of God's word is such that no word can be dismissed. These words will always be effective. That is, they cannot be proved false. People will be tempted, of course, don't they, through time to think that God's word will not come to pass. But he warns, I love the little phrase here, though it linger, wait. Though it linger, wait for it. Uh, It will certainly come and will not delay. God speaks of a If you think about the context here, chapter 2, verse 1, there's Habakkuk. He's probably on the ramparts, the embattlements, looking for the dust of Babylon coming. And he waits there. And another week passes. And another week and a month pass. And and so on, he's waiting. How tempting would it have been at some point to just go, ah, it's never going to happen. God's word can't be trusted. Oh, time may pass, but it will certainly come. I hope you realise that God cannot speak an ineffective word. So what is this revelation about? It's about the coming of Babylon in judgment. And therefore it's about the subsequent downfall of Judah, God's people. But also how Judah are to face that onslaught. And it's brutal. The critical verse of the whole revelation is in verse 4. Look it down with it, you'll see it. You'll recognise it, I hope, as well. The righteous person will live by his faithfulness. I hope you recognise it because we looked at it, didn't we, in our home groups just this week in Hebrews 10. It's also quoted in Romans 1, verse 17, and Galatians 3, verse 11. We'll come back to that verse in a moment. But for now, let's look at the verse in its context. We find it. Here we're going back to the basics a little. To, I hope just to clarify what faith is. I think that's always a good thing, isn't it, to rehearse. Now, I've put down on your sheets four points. Uh, uh, hopefully what we learn about our faith in God. Firstly, let's look at, our, uh, at the anchor of our faith. Now, we've touched on this already. Uh, but what is Habakkuk's faith based upon? What anchors his faith? The basis of Habakkuk's faith in God is this vision, this revelation that is to be written down from verses 2 through to verse 20. Summarised, that actually comes in two parts. We'll look at the next part next week as well. Uh, Essentially, he's saying the day is coming when the Babylonians will conquer and overthrow. Second part is really the day is coming when God's kingdom is coming on earth. Now, Habakkuk in that context, lives by faith. Because the object of his faith is the written promise of the revelation of God. 
You receive it uh, by his faith, he says. And then you respond in faith because faith goes on living and believing what God says, both past, present and future. Habakkuk, you see, is given this vision, a revelation from God regarding the future, both the near future, but also the final future as well. The righteous person, he's saying here, will receive this, hold on to it by faith. One of the great confessions of the Christian church, uh, the Westminster Confession, could describe saving faith in this way. By this faith, a Christian believeth uh, to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word. For the authority of God himself is speaking therein. So you see, the anchor of our faith is the revelation of God as revealed in his word. Now, what does that look like in practice? Faith means that you carry on believing in God's revealed word, despite all other opposing information around you, despite all the feelings that you may have contrary to the word. And so if the word is the anchor of your faith, then it's not just the comforting words that we hold on to. It's all the word we hold on to. Which is a daily decision, isn't it? And sometimes a painful one, a costly one. Because other options may seem easier for us, more fun. Oh, let's just let God's word go in that area of our lives. Very practically, though, sometimes we may even doubt in our eternal salvation in Christ. Well, if the anchor of our faith is God's revelation in his word, we can cling, can't we? To particular verses, uh, the whole of the Bible, really. But, you know, think of John 10, for example, verse 29. No one can snatch him out of my father's hands, Jesus says. There'd be many other places you could go as well. Perhaps if you're married, a husband, wife, you have a big fight. Every part of you wants to go to bed, not resolve the issue. But because you have received by faith God's revelation, you listen to Ephesians 4.26. And you will not let the sun go down on your anger. You walk by faith. Practically. Faith is not a feeling that you have. It is confidence in what God has said. Finley Cook uh, was a pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Inverness in Scotland. I drove past that uh, last summer. In the 1820s this was. He was married to Elizabeth and they were absolutely infatuated with each other. Uh, Elizabeth died and Finley was distraught and her body was laid in the other room in the house and he prayed this prayer before his dinner with some of his elders. Though an angel should come from heaven to tell me that this would work for my good, I should not believe him. But because thou sayest thyself in thy word... I believe it from thine own mouth. At thy command we came together. At thy command we parted. At thy command we shall be together forever. Amen. Faith is not a feeling that you have. It is confidence in what God has said. 
the anchor of faith, God's revelation, his word. What else can we learn from these verses about our faith in God? Secondly, then, second point, the, uh, the loneliness of faith. Now, look at down at verse four, if you may, for, for a moment. Verse four is one of those verses in the Bible where a contrast is placed before us which is then magnified by the kind of the vivid descriptions that follow. So the Babylonian is described. Look, see, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But, contrast, the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. See, the Babylonian is pictured, the one who is, uh, by his power, his dominance, his position, as a superpower, as they were or, or were becoming. He lives by his control of the world and his environment around him by his creature comforts. I love the fact they slip in wine there at verse 5. He lives by the power of his social standing and his financial security. That's what he puts his faith in. But then look at verse 5. Indeed, wine betrays him. He's arrogant and he's never at rest because he is as greedy as the grave. Again, what a beautiful phrase. And like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. You see the contrast? It's obvious, isn't it? The Babylonian lives and trusts in all that he can reap and control in the world. He is the ultimate self-sufficient London professional, maybe. But... The righteous faith alone. The righteous person will live by his faithfulness. You see, the loneliness of faith uh, in one sense is that the righteous live by faith alone. As Calvin says, faith brings us naked and needy before God. The righteous will go on living by his faith alone. No props, no supports from the world uh, before God. It is simply faith alone. We recognise that what we have in God is sufficient for eternity. And what we have in our wallets and our CVs and our intellect, our beauty, our ability, we know they may be all good things and we can thank God for them, but they are insufficient in and for eternity before an almighty God. And that is why we go on living by faith alone. But the loneliness of faith is also that our faith is distinctive. It is an isolating, lonely faith. We as Christians are a minority as we live out our lives, putting our faith in Jesus. There is a a well-known cartoon found on the walls of the Palatine Hill in Rome. Apparently there's a museum there now, and uh, it's it's of a cross. And on the cross is a, a figure of a human being with a donkey's head. And at the foot of the cross is a crude drawing of a man with one hand uplifted as in worship. And then the Greek letters beneath there is this this inscription which reads, Alexaminos worships God. Alexaminos was a, a Christian page boy, apparently. He was mocked in this rough cartoon on the walls. Uh, the essence of the cartoon is essentially saying, Jesus is an ass. And anyone who worships him is an ass too. The loneliness of faith hasn't changed, has it? 
Do you know what under that, under that inscription? On the Palatine Hill in Rome. There's also another inscription in the Greek. Added at a similar time. And it says. Alexaminos is faithful. Because that is what faith in God looks like. It just makes us stand out. Faith in God is is a distinctive life. You you know what that looks like and you know what it feels like because you live in a very, very secular place. At work, in your social life, you feel this every day, don't you, as a Christian? We know what it is to walk by faith. Some silently admire us from a distance. Some tolerate us just about. Some and many, many, many more, as time goes by, will despise us. For our so-called tolerant society is a lonely and very intolerant place at times because we stand in stark contrast, don't we? And I have to say, it's likely to get harder and harder. The loneliness of faith. So firstly, the anchor of faith. Secondly, the loneliness. Third point, the persistence of faith. Let's let's get our heads back into verse 4 again. But the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Better translated because of the tense, it's a, will go on living by his faith. It's an imperfect continuing aspect to that verb. And go on living, always will. It's the nature of that word there. Its sense means that the righteous person will persevere, will keep going. They won't give in. I wonder for how long. Well, simply reading the text seems to suggest that the righteous will go on living for more than a few years. But the context is helpful for this is a contrast. We've got the Babylonians, haven't we? Oh, they look so strong, so powerful, so fearsome as a nation. But they will perish. And that is contrasted to the people of God who will go on living by faith. But is that a living to uh, eternity, a living by faith to eternity? Well, maybe eternity is not the primary focus here, but the contrast is certain in chapter 2. The Babylonians will eventually perish under God's judgment as you reach the end of the chapter. In contrast, the righteous will live by their faith in an eternal God. And what does that mean for us? I think the persistence of faith is seen here primarily as we see the righteous will going on, they will go on living by their faith, whatever the trouble. Because I think I can possibly guarantee that even all of us, whatever trouble befalls us in the years to come, it's nothing in comparison to the Babylonian Empire coming and sacking your city. Can faith handle a foreign conqueror that will linger? Verse 3. It will seem to delay, but what does this tell us about biblical faith? I think it shows us that faith is not optimism or kind of escapism, as some people might say, or or relief. It's not a kind of bright outlook, a kind of happy-go-lucky kind of demeanour, a kind of half-pintful kind of person. Put verse 4 in your context. But the righteous person will keep on living. Through what? Violence? 
cancer, loneliness, singleness, poverty, unemployment, marital tension. You add anything to that list. And the righteous person will keep on living by his or her faith. That's the nature of true faith. It has this brutish persistence. It perseveres. It doesn't give in. However it feels emotionally or whatever the circumstances before, it clings to God. Whatever. Lastly and briefly, the choice of faith. Point four. There is a choice to be made. There's an opportunity before us. Habakkuk makes it uh, easier as he distills the entire world and kind of history into these kind of two individuals, the Babylonian and the one who lives by faith. It's similar, isn't it, to what Paul does in, in Romans 5 with Adam and Christ, yeah? Verse 12 onwards, have a look at that later if you like. But in, in verse 4 and 5, uh, though our translation, I don't think it helps here, that there's... Numerous singulars, the righteous singular, uh, also is he is arrogant, he's an arrogant man, is the singular there. Essentially, we're presented with this contrast, an opportunity that's before every single one of us. We can be the righteous one or the restless one. The righteous or the restless. To be righteous doesn't mean to be self-righteous, working to try and gain our own salvation. No, the righteous one is the one who has come empty-handed and needy before God and known their sins to be forgiven, trusting in his promises. It's throughout the Old Testament, but we live in, of course, the New Covenant era, inaugurated through the life, death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know forgiveness of our sin as we turn to live by faith in Christ, who took on himself all the justice that our sin deserves, and who rose to new life, that the righteous too who put their faith in him, who are in him, might receive that life too as a gift of grace. Where we find our ultimate rest, of course, and our security and faith in Jesus. <coughs> By contrast, the arrogant, self-sufficient, Able, powerful Babylonian never rests. Now and eternally. And so we have a contrast. We have two men, the righteous and the Babylonian who is restless. Who are you? You will go on living by your faith in Christ or you will be a Babylonian. And that is the choice of faith before us all. One lives and one dies. One eternally rests and one never rests. And that is the choice of faith. Let's pray as we close. The righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Heavenly Father, I do pray that all of us might know um, 
what it is to be living by faith, day by day by day by day, until the days are no more and we meet you face to face in eternity. Heavenly Father, what a joy and privilege it is to to hear these warnings, but also see the, the wonderful assurance of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we, we need nothing, but we just need to put our trust, our faith in him. For he has achieved everything that is necessary for life now and for eternity to come. We rejoice in him. We rest in him. And I pray that we will praise and honour him as we leave today and go about our weeks. Amen. <laughs>